Now let's open our Bibles again to Philippians chapter 2. Passage Brother Eric just read for us. I must have read this text 50 times this week. And when Eric read it a few moments ago, it's like I never heard it before. It was, I, I just thought, I can't wait to preach on this, <laughs> this passage. Now, Paul, we ended chapter 1 last week, and he's still on the same subject. He's talking about how the believer's daily conduct should be becoming to the gospel that we preach. Our conduct should match the, the gospel that we preach. He's showing us that the gospel is the rule of the believer's life. It's not the, the law, it's the gospel. And these verses particularly deal with our attitude toward each other. How is it that we can work together better to, in the furtherance of the gospel, to, to preach the gospel to our generation? You know, it's not just the, the words that we say, our attitude, our attitude toward the Lord, and our attitude toward each other is very important. But before we look at our attitude, I want us to look at the attitude of Christ our Savior. The Almighty God did the most amazing act of power and love and mercy that could ever be told. The holy, eternal God saved sinners. I mean, you think of that. Who could be more opposite of God than us, sinners? And God saved sinners. Before he created anything, the Father chose a people to save. A people who would never love him first, who would never choose him first. Yet he loved them and chose them first. Chose to save them and gave them to his Son. The Son came incarnate. He came in our flesh and our nature. And he paid the redemption price by his sacrifice for his people. For those people that the Father gave him to save. He satisfied justice on their behalf by suffering and dying is their substitute, taking the punishment that they deserve. And the Holy Spirit comes, and He moves powerfully through the preaching of the gospel. Now, people in the flesh hate that gospel. They're opposed to it. It says everything the opposite of what the flesh thinks. The flesh, by nature, hates the gospel of Christ. Yet the Spirit moves in power and takes that gospel that the flesh hates and gives new life and makes that sinner love the gospel. They love to hear it. They can't wait to hear it again. They need to hear it again because now they believe Christ and they love Christ and they want to hear him preached. And God's going to take all those people when the appointed time comes for this world to end or the appointed time comes for these bodies to die and take his people to be with him, to be forever with him. Now that's the most amazing story that's ever been told. You can't think of anything more awe-inspiring more amazing, more soul-thrilling than what Almighty God has done for His people by sacrificing His own Son for them. And on top of that, when the Savior came, He saved a wretched, vile people. He did it in such a gracious attitude. He didn't pay the debt grudgingly. You know, the Lord would be worthy of eternal praise. If what he did is he came and saved his people from their sin. I want to say this very carefully, but you know what I mean. It, it, but he was a little grumpy about it. Like, why do I have to keep doing this for you? He was so patient with his disciples. You know, why, do I, why do I have to keep doing this for you? Look what I got to do for you. I mean, look, I, 
I shouldn't have to do this for you. He never said that. He did it in such a gracious, loving attitude. If, if the Lord just, he, he was a little grumpy about all of our sin and our failure and our, you know, and just, he, and he, but he, he still yet saved his people from their sins. That would still be the most amazing story of grace ever told, wouldn't it? But on top of paying the sin debt of his people with his own life's blood, the Lord did it in such a gracious, loving, tender, compassionate attitude for sinners. The worst of sinners were the people who were always the most comfortable around the Lord Jesus. Always. Now, I wish we'd get a hold of this. The Savior had such a a wonderful, gracious attitude in doing everything that it took to save His people. He suffered everything that he, that they they deserved. He took their sin away from them and suffered for it. He did that with such a wonderful attitude because he loves his people with an eternal, everlasting love. And the Savior's love for his people, his love for his Father, his love for his people, his love is the foundation of his attitude that he showed in his redemption of his people. I want us to look at some of his attitude, some of the, the mind, the attitude of the saviors. He went about saving his people. First, let's look at verse 6, Philippians chapter 2. The Lord had an attitude of humility in saving his people. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, when the Lord Jesus came in the flesh, he did not rob God of his glory when he said, I'm equal with the Father. I and my Father are one. He wasn't robbing God of his glory when he said that because it's true. Now, if you and I would ever dare to say that, well, we'd be robbing God of his glory because it's not true. But it's true when Christ said it. I said this in the lesson and I told you I like saying it, so I'm going to say it again. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's not a lesser version of God. He's not God 2.0, God light. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. Mary's baby, born Bethlehem's manger, is the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. I mean, we just can't tell the glory of Christ too high. You can't exaggerate his glory too high because you and I can't even begin to start to imagine how glorious he is, how much higher above us God is. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's God. And here's why I love to say that. Since the Savior is God, he's got all the power of God. He cannot fail to do what he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. Then, brother, he did it. Whatever he came to save, they're saved. They're redeemed. Because he can't fail to do what he came to do. And this high and lofty one, God himself, when he came to save his people, you think how he humbled himself to appear in our flesh with our nature. The eternal son, whom the heavens cannot contain, humbled himself to be an embryo in Mary's womb. He humbled himself to be born as Mary's baby boy, a poor woman, in a manger. She had to lay him in a cow trough. 
God Almighty, who has all power to do all things, nobody can stay his hand, came in the flesh. And when he did, he limited himself to the flesh. He limited himself to do in the flesh what you and I could do. Do for himself. Now he would he would use the power of God to heal and to save and to do, do those things for others, but not himself. When he was thirsty, he had to ask a sinful woman for a drink. The same man who asked that sinful woman for a drink told any sinner that's thirsty, come to me. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. I'll give you. But when he was physically thirsty, he had, you think about that. He had to ask a sinful woman to give him a drink. When he was hungry, he couldn't turn the stones into bread. He couldn't do that to feed himself because you and I can't do that for, for ourselves. But when he looked at that crowd who was following him, his heart was moved for them in compassion. He looked at them as sheep not having a shepherd and he took a boy's lunch and fed everyone up. Oh, he was so gracious and kind to the needy and to sinners, but he wouldn't use that power for himself. He took on him the weakness of our flesh and limited himself and limited his power because he came as the representative of his people. He could only do for himself physically what you and I can do for ourselves. And he had to come in the flesh to do it. He had to limit himself to be in the flesh to do it. God Almighty can't be our representative, can he? He's spirit. God is spirit. God can't die. God is life. He is life. God can't be sacrificed for sin. He has no body to be sacrificed because he's spirit. God cannot be our representative because he's got a different nature. But a man can. A man can be our representative. So God's son humbled himself to come in the flesh. To have a body that could be sacrificed. To have a body that could die in the place of his people. God's son humbled himself to live in that holy body that the father prepared for him for this reason. So he could go to the cross and give it up. So he could go to the cross and be sacrificed for the sins of his people. How he humbled himself. Can you? We just can't even begin to imagine how far it was he came down. We, just, we can't imagine it. Now all of us have some idea of what it feels like to be humbled, doesn't it? To be embarrassed, that, oh, that feeling. The Lord Jesus Christ endured a constant feeling of shame, humiliation at appearing in our flesh, in the weakness of our flesh. He lived about 33 and a half years that way. And if that wasn't humiliation enough, the Lord humbled himself even further. He humbled himself to take the sin of his people. The Holy Son of God humbled himself to take the sin of his people and he humbled himself to die, to die in their place. And when he died, he wasn't just laying in his bed, this soft glow, you know, around him, the disciples, you know, around him, and he laid in his bed all and died. That's not it. He died a painful humiliating death on the cursed tree. He died on the cursed tree because he was made a curse for his people. He was made sin for his people. He suffered the humiliation. He's one with the Father. He suffered the humiliation of his Father turning his back on him. Separating his gracious, loving presence from his Son. 
He suffered the humiliation of the father taking the sword of justice and plunging it into his very soul. It wasn't, it wasn't bad enough that, that people hated him. The father poured out his holy anger upon him. Oh, he suffered the humiliation. You think of the Savior hanging there on the cross, stripped naked, people making fun of him. And we can imagine you know, the, the humiliation and embarrassment of what it would be like to be naked in front of a bunch of people. You know, everybody has the dream, at least I think they do, about waking up in science class or math class naked, you know. We can imagine what that might, might be like. But we can't imagine the humiliation of the Son of God appearing naked before his Father. We can't imagine the humiliation he suffered when he was made sin for his people and the Father would pour out his wrath upon him, would not look on him in love. And he did that so that his people would be redeemed from their sin. The Lord and Master of all. Remember the disciples talking to his Master, the disciples said, you call me Lord and Master and you say, well, for so I am. Yet he humbled himself to be a servant. He humbled himself to be the servant to his father. Now he's equal with the father. But he gave up his rights and became a servant to his father. He came in the flesh to serve his father and to obey his father's law. To establish righteousness on the earth. The righteousness that the father demanded so that his people would be saved. Now it's one thing for the Savior, the Son of God, to submit himself, become a servant to the Father. And, I mean, the Father, in his glory, just, oh, the Father. Our Savior humbled himself even further. The Lord and Master humiliated himself to become a servant for his people. He came not to be ministered to like the big boss. He came to minister to his people by giving his life a ransom for many. And when he took the sin of his people and he went to the cross and he suffered everything that he was suffering, as he was suffering, he did it in an attitude of delight. Of delight. Looking forward to the joy that he would have in redeeming his people. Oh, how the humiliation he suffered. Willingly called it his delight. Number two, the Lord had an attitude of obedience when he came to save his people. Verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You think about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's the one that appeared to Moses on Sinai. It was the finger of Christ that wrote those ten commandments and those tables of stone and gave them to Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. He's the judge of all of the earth. Yet he humbled himself to come in the flesh and obey his own law. You know, kings give laws and typically speaking, they don't have to obey him, do they? Everybody else does. This king gave the law and nobody could obey it. So he came in the flesh to obey it. As a child, as a baby boy born and growing to a toddler and a child, you think, how he was obedient to his parents who were his creatures. They got life and breath from him. From him. They were de completely dependent on him, yet he obeyed them. 
the perfect child. He was obedient to his own law. He was obedient to the ceremonies, all the, the ceremonies of the Mosaic law. He was obedient to those ceremonies, even though they'd been defiled by men. I mean, you just think how defiled just the high priest was. It was, it was not a lifetime appointment that, you know, the high priest died and his son became high, high priest in his place. And it was such a solemn thing to represent the people to God and to offer the sacrifice. This was an elected thing. I mean, they just, you know, offered bribes. I'll be the high priest this year. You'd be the high priest next year. You know, they defiled it. But he was obedient to it. He was obedient to a very imperfect people. And then his obedience went even further. Paul says he was obedient unto death. The father said, son, you must be made sin for my people. You must suffer and die to put away the sin of my elect. It's the only way my holiness can be satisfied. It's the only way my justice can be satisfied. It's the only way I can be both just and justifier. You must take the sin of my people and put it away by your sacrifice. You've got to suffer and die to do it. And the son readily and obediently gave himself to be sacrificed for the sin of his people. He looked forward to it, his whole earthly ministry, didn't he? And he said, now my hour's come. They didn't drag him kicking and screaming. When that mob came to take him, he came out and stepped out in front of his disciples and said, boys, who do you see? He wasn't hiding. When he, they, they beat his back, he didn't try to run away. He didn't try to take his back from him. When they blindfolded him, punched him in the face, and said, prophesy, tell us. You're a prophet, tell us who hit you. He didn't turn his face from him. They went to pluck out his beard. He didn't turn his face from them. Every lash, every lash of that cat of nine tails was yours and mine. And he took it. He took it bearing the punishment of his people. He didn't hide. When they went to nail him to the tree, he laid down willingly. They didn't have to hold him down. He wasn't fighting. He gave his hands and his feet to be nailed to the tree. He was obedient to his father. And he hung there in agony. Physical agony. and agony of soul. Suffering for sin. He suffered until all the sin laid on him was put away. And then in one final act of obedience. He gave up the ghost and died. He died to satisfy his father's justice. That his people would never die. Oh, what obedience. That perfect obedience. Don't you love to hear about the perfect obedience of Christ? The believer does. Because his obedience is my obedience. His obedience is my righteousness. All his perfect obedience in saving his people. And now, now it's all done but to shout. Our Lord is glorified because he did everything the Father sent him to do. Verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Savior died but Christ didn't stay dead because the sin that was laid on him was put away by his blood. He couldn't stay dead. He satisfied his Father. The Father would raise him from the dead. 
Now remember I told you I love to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. Since he's God, he did. He accomplished what he came to do. But here are these verses describing. He's the successful, victorious, conquering, reigning Savior. And since the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified, since the Father accepted him, remember one time the Father turned his back on him. At one time the Father thrust the sword of justice into his, into his soul. Now the Father has accepted him back into glory and said, sit here on my right hand. I make your enemies your footstool. Since the Savior is glorified, that means everybody he died for, everybody he came to save is eternally redeemed. And that's the joy. That's the hope of every believer. That's the gospel that we love, isn't it? That's the gospel that we preach, the gospel that we believe. How that the Lord Jesus Christ completely accomplished the redemption of his people all by himself and gives it to his people freely. Now, we who believe on Christ, we have been saved. Saved from our sins, saved from God's wrath, saved from the anger of God. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. His blood paid the redemption price. Our souls have been cleansed from every sin, from even the stain of sin, the hint of sin, the blood of Christ washed it away. We've been given eternal life. And I don't know when life on this earth will end, but every believer can look forward to when life on this earth ends they can look forward to glory with Christ. Being made like Him, being with Him where He is. Right now, we know who saved us, don't we? I know. If, if Christ saved you, you know it. If God saved you, you know who saved you. And you know how He saved you. As your substitute. As your sacrifice. We know the truth of God. I, by God's grace, I know the truth of God. I know how God saved sinners. I know that. But listen, salvation... It's not just knowledge. Salvation is a heart work. That salvation that's in the heart, it's going to be shown in our conduct, in our attitude. It will be. It will be. I seriously question a profession of faith that does not include a change in attitude. I just, I just question that great, greatly because whatever it is that's in our heart, truly in our heart, will come out in our actions. It will. And this is what Paul is telling us here. Let the attitude of Christ the Savior, those attitudes that he had in redeeming your soul, let the attitude of Christ the Savior be in your heart and let that guide how you interact and how you treat your brethren. Let's look, look back now at verse 1 of chapter 2. If there be therefore... Any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. And the apostle says here, if there be any consolation in Christ, and if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. That word if is probably better translated when, when. If these things are in the believer, if they are in you, I'll tell you why they're in you. You've been made a new creature in Christ and God put them in you. That's the only way they can be in you. So this is what he's saying. He's talking to believers here now. Since these things are in you by the new birth, since God's put them in your heart, see you conduct yourself according to the gospel. See that you conduct yourself according to these things. Since these attitudes have been put in you by the Holy Spirit, the attitude's in you. If you 
These attitudes are in every single believer. Now, since they're in you, act on them. First, Paul says consolation. The word means to comfort. It means to ease and comfort the soul. It means take the pressure off people. And it also means this. I, I love that. I never would have known this if I hadn't looked it up. It means this. It means comfort someone. Take the pressure off by calling them near. You can't console somebody from afar. Do it by calling them near. And I tell you, if anybody in this life needs consolation, as we trudge through this earth below, it's a believer. In this life, we're going to have trouble and trial. That's what the Lord promised us. We need consolation. And Paul tells us here where it's at. It's consolation in Christ. In Christ. We don't just tell everybody, well, you know, it'll be okay, and God has a plan, and this, you know, this. Our consolation is in Christ. Our hearts are consoled. The heart of a believer is consoled. When somebody calls us near and says, come here, come near. Let's hear the gospel together. Let's hear the gospel of Christ. Let's hear one more time how Christ's blood cleansed us from all of our sin. Let's hear one more time how Christ loved his own. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Let's hear one more time by his everlasting, eternal love. If God loves you, he'd never quit. You might need consolation right now. You, you might not necessarily feel God's love. Oh, but let me tell you, God's loved you with an everlasting love. His love's unchanging. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you, he said. He'll never fail you. He'll never leave you. All our souls are comforted through the preaching of the gospel. When the Spirit takes that preaching of the gospel and he applies the blood of Christ to our hearts. Our hearts are comforted. By having the wine and the oil of the gospel poured onto our broken hearts. And we're given consolation. And you see here, our consolation is in Christ. Christ is our consolation. He is our consolation. He's the one that took all the pressure off. He established a perfect righteousness for his people. You don't have to obey the law to be righteous. Christ did it for you. He took all the pressure off, didn't he? He just gives it to you freely. All of salvation he gives to you as a free gift. All the pressure is taken off, isn't it? And when he gives it to you, you can't lose it. You can't lose it by your sin and your weak faith and your failure. You can't lose it. All the pressure's off, isn't it? And we're consoled. The hearts are consoled. Dwayne, there's not one thing in this world I can do to ease your pain or take your pain away. Lost you. Not one thing I can do. But you know what I can do? I can preach Christ. And that doesn't take your pain away. You still lost your brother. But it consoles your heart. That's the heart thrilling. That's what everything in this life is changing. But he's not changing. He's not changing. He's not going to cast me away. That's the, see, that's the consolation. It doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't take the tears away. But at the same time, consoles your heart. Now, I know that sounds like a contradiction, and it's a contradiction only believe and understand. <laughs> There's the pain of the flesh and the consolation of the heart. And the only way the believer can be consoled is by preaching, hearing Christ preached. 
hearing that he's my all. Now you who believe, God put that attitude in you. Your heart is consoled by hearing Christ preached in it. Then act on it. And take the pressure off your brethren. Don't hold your brethren's feet to the fire. And say, you know, they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do this to me. I, you know, the law says they shouldn't do that. That's not right. And don't hold their feet to the fire after Christ is uh, the fire of the law. After Christ has delivered you from the from the law, take the pressure off of them. Call them near. Remember, that's what consolation. Call them near and comfort their hearts with the preaching of Christ. Call them near. Go to the worship service with. That's their consolation. Then Paul says comfort. And this word comfort means uh, like the word comfort, like what we think, uh, the way we use the word. But it also means a persuasive address. A persuasive address. And Paul says this comfort now is the comfort of love. It's the comfort of God's love to his people. It's the comfort that God's people have to God. We love him. We love him. And it's the comfort of the love that we have to each other. Now the Holy Spirit is the comforter. That's his name, the comforter, isn't it? Well, how does the Spirit comfort God's people? Well, he does it by taking the things of Christ and showing them to us. Showing us the redemption in Christ Jesus. Now God's put that attitude in your heart. If you believe him, God's put this attitude of love, comfort of love in your heart. Now see that you act on it. When, when someone that you know, love, one of our brethren is in trouble, convince them. Give them a persuasive, a persuasive address and convince them of Christ's love for them. Our comfort is in Christ's love for His people. And He proved His love for His people. He redeemed them from their sins. He loves His people. I'll tell you, nothing is more comforting to a believer than this. God loves me. Christ loves me. He proved it by laying down his life for me. Then it's going to be all right. He's not doing something unloving and wrong now. I know that. It's a trial. It hurts. But that don't mean God doesn't love me. That doesn't mean that God's quit loving me. No. He loves his people. Nothing is more comforting than that. I don't understand it. But this is why, even though I don't understand, this is why I believe. God loves me in Christ. Oh, that comforts me. Give somebody a persuasive address. Convince them. They have comfort in knowing that they love Christ. If you, if you believe you love Christ and you think, well, my love's awful cold, it's awful fickle. Most of the time, somebody can't even, by watching me, they can't tell I love Christ. And we'd be like Peter and say, Lord, none of these fellas see it. But Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. It's not perfect. It's not what I want it to be. But Lord, you know I love you. Well, you know, if, if that love is in your heart, you know why it's there? God put it there. He put it there in an act of grace when He gave you life and the new birth. He made you His child. Oh, how comforting it is to hear. You're a child of God. If you're God's child, <laughs> you're not an orphan. You're His child. He's going to take care of His child. Convince somebody. Talk to them. Give them a persuasive address that you love them. And brother, don't just put it in words. Show it. Show it. Act on it. Be sure they know and feel that you're loved for them. It'll comfort their hearts. 
Act on what God has put in your heart. And it'll be a blessing to others. It'll help this, the whole congregation work together in what God's given us to do. Preach Christ our generation. Then next, Paul says, fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship means to have something in common, to be partakers of the same thing. And it means to communicate about what you have in common. I know we think of fellowship, we typically think about getting together with each other, eating lunch and drink a cup of coffee and whatever, you know. And we do enjoy that fellowship with each other. Absolutely, it's a good thing. And i tell you one, one reason it's such a blessing. Whenever we get together, invariably, we're going to talk about what we have in common. What do we have in common? Well, probably several things, but here's the preeminent thing. We've got the same Lord, the same Master, and the same Savior. And we're just going to talk about it. We love the same gospel. We're going to talk about it. We have that fellowship around what we have in common. But Paul here says specifically our fellowship is fellowship of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit of God. The believer has fellowship when we're all alone. Fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God because the Spirit dwells in your heart. A believer has been made partaker. Fellowship, partaker. We've been made partaker of the divine nature. We've been given a nature in the new birth that's the nature of Christ our Savior. And we have fellowship with Him. We have fellowship with the Spirit. When the Spirit talks to our hearts. Now here I am preaching, but boy, I sure hope you hear a whole lot more than me. You know when you'll be blessed? As the gospel's being preached. Whoever's preaching it, when the gospel's being preached. You have fellowship with Christ because the Holy Spirit's talking to you. The Holy Spirit's communicating with you and showing you the things of Christ. And you have fellowship. You have fellowship with Him. Now you who believe know exactly what I'm talking about. God's put that attitude in you. Fellowship of the Spirit. Well, see that you act on it. Act on it by thinking about, by enjoying how you have fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit. He takes the things of Christ and shows them to you. Now do that for others. Do that for your brothers and sisters. When they're in a time of trouble, I promise you, nothing will reach their heart more than talk about this fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship that we have in Christ. Then Paul mentions bowels and mercies. He's talking about the very innermost being. It's the seat of emotion where all of our other emotions come from. Bowels and mercy. Love. Now this thing of loving God is not just lip service. It's from the heart. My heart is moved toward God when I hear the gospel. This thing of loving Christ. I believe Him. I love Him. That's not just lip service. My heart is moved toward Christ the Savior when I hear him preached. When I described what he did for his people and the attitude in which he did it, did that move your heart? That's love for Christ. Oh, my heart is moved. It causes me to come to him. I hear the gospel preached. My heart is thrilled. It's moved toward Christ. That's not just lip service. And I tell you this thing of loving each other, not just lip service either. I tell you, my heart is moved towards you. When you all hurt, I mean, my heart aches. My heart is moved towards you. And even in your everyday life, when nothing 
particularly seems to be going wrong, my heart's moved towards you. I want God to bless you. I want God to be with you. Our hearts move toward each other. And God's put that attitude in the heart of all of his people. Now, don't just feel it and don't say anything. Don't do anything. See that you act on it. You have to put some effort into this thing now. Act on it. And here's what will enable you to act on what you feel. Oh my, to think of Christ's love for me. His love for his people wasn't his lip service, was it? It caused him to give himself, himself, everything that he is, body and soul, to be sacrificed for the sin of his people. Christ's love for him moved, or for his people, moved him to go to the cross and to count it a joy. I tell you, thinking about that, make me have the motivation to put some effort into showing my love for you. Show your love one to another. And Paul says, look here, verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul said, you give me such joy if you do a few things for me. You want to give your pastor some joy. Tell you what to do. Show these attitudes in your actions. Show them. It, it gave Paul such joy to see these attitudes and actions and these Philippian believers. And here's why it gave him such joy. When you see these things in action, that's a pretty good indication there's been a work of grace in the heart. Because none of this stuff comes naturally to the flesh. If somebody has these, these emotions or these things in them, whatever you want to call them, that's indication God's put them there. That's the only way they get there. And Paul says, since you have all these things, be like-minded. Have unity together. Our world is looks for reasons today to separate. It looks for reasons to divide. It looks for reasons to be offended. It looks for reasons just to, to start a, out a war with somebody, you know. And unfortunately, that attitude of the world has bled into the church. Now let's get rid of it. I mean, let's just get rid of it right now. And have unity. Not separations over things that don't matter. Don't look for things that your brethren are doing and, and look for a reason. To, oh, they offended me and I'm going to... Have unity of purpose. Our unity is un, unity of purpose. It's the glory of Christ our Savior. That's our purpose. Our sole purpose for being here, Hurricane Road Grace Church, is to preach the gospel to our generation that sinners would be saved. That God would use the preaching of the gospel to call his sheep to him. That God's sheep would be fed. That God's sheep would be encouraged. That they'd grow in grace through the preaching of Christ. If we can't have unity of spirit, unity of purpose on that, let's close the doors and go someplace else. Let's strive together for this unity. It's unity of purpose. And it's unity of love. I know we're all different people. We you know, like some, some different things, but Buddy, we're all in love with the same person. We're all in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then let's do what we can, everything we can, for his cause, that his name would be glorified. If God enables us to do that, there ain't going to be no time for fussing and fighting. <laughs> if we're all acting in unity of love for Christ, there's going to be no room for fussing and fighting, is there? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have unity of purpose. It's saving your soul.
bringing you to glory, then let that attitude be in us too. Let this be our purpose, that the gospel of Christ would would be furthered. In verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Oh, I pray God give us an attitude of humility and that we'd act on it. Have an attitude of humility, not because you're pretending to be humble, but because God's actually humbled you. you know, don't do anything for vainglory. You know, all vainglory is, is pride. And there is nothing that destroys unity and destroys a worship service, the attitude of worship, more than pride. A proud person simply cannot worship. The only people that can worship are people who are humbled that God's broken and put down in the dust. A proud person can't, can't worship. It just destroys the whole attitude of worship. And the, the, cause, the cause of division and separation every single time is pride. Is pride. That I just can't put my pride away and have unity and worship together. And nothing dishonors God more. Nothing dishonors his gospel more. If the gospel is our rule of life now, nothing dishonors the gospel more. Nothing is more contrary to the gospel than pride. Because we got nothing to be proud of. We got a lot of reasons to be ashamed, but no reason, to, no reason for pride. Humility. This is the best definition of humility I've ever heard. It's the right view, the right estimation of myself. To see myself as I really am. Well, here's how you put humility in action. Be quick to see your own sin. Be quick to see your own faults, but slow to see them in others. That's an attitude of humility. We should all just assume everybody else is better than me. Everybody else is more spiritual than me. They're, they're better taught than me. They're, they're better acting than me. you you got to be. You have to be. Because I know my heart. And there's no way in this world you're as bad as me. Just, you have to be better than me. If we think of ourselves that way, you know what we'll do? I won't promote myself. I'll promote others. I'll help others. I'll, and I'll tell you, nothing's going to promote unity more than that. In every decision. Now this, approach this thing with some humility. Let's not think about what's best for me. In every decision we make, individually and as a group, let's think, what's best for others? What's best for this congregation? What's best for the individuals? here? What's, what's best for our children? What's best for our old folks? What's, what's best for our middle-aged folks? What's best for them? What's best for their welfare? What's best for their learning? What's best for their salvation? The answer is always going to be preach Christ. Then let's do that. Not what's best for me, what's best for somebody else. And be obedient one to another. Submit yourself to the needs of others. Put their needs ahead of yours and do what it takes to, to, to fulfill their needs. Be obedient to your pastor. And that doesn't mean, uh, man, I, I don't want to tell you everything to do in your life. I, I got enough to do living my own life. When we're talking about being obedient to the pastor, it's this. Be obedient to the message that he preaches. Believe Christ. Trust him. Look to him. Work together now so others can hear of him and believe on him. If God give us that attitude, I'm telling you this, it'll be a whole lot easier to do what God's given us to do which is preach the gospel of our generation, meet together on Sundays and Wednesdays, and worship him. Lift up his name, not my name.
Amen. I can't think what else to say about that. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. Oh, how we thank you for the, the compassion and the love and the, the tenderness, the humility of Christ our Savior that would move him to do everything that's necessary to save his people. Oh, how we thank you. How we love him, how we believe him, how we, we bow before you. Father, I pray that you give each one of us here this morning faith, God-given faith to believe in him, cling to him, look to him. Make Christ our all and in all. Make him all of our hope, all of our joy. And Father, make him all of our motivation to serve you, serve one another. Father, give us these attitudes. Enable us to, to act on them, to be a help and encouragement to our brothers and the furtherance of the gospel. Don't let us be a, a stumbling block in the way of Christ for, for someone, but let us be a, a help in, in bringing your people, pointing them to our Lord Jesus Christ. For his blessed name we pray. Amen. All right, Chris. All right, in closing, if you would, take your hymnal and turn it to 309, and we'll be standing as we close, please. Beneath the cross of Jesus. <clears throat>